My name is Jason Wegener. I'm the associate pastor here. Pastor Greco, who was just here leading in worship, is the senior pastor. If you're not uh, a regular among us, but um, he had some extensive travels and responsibilities this week, and I have the privilege of preaching to you this morning. We're back in James, and this is the the series that um, I have been going through over the last several uh, months and years. And um, the last time we looked at this was a number of months ago, back in the spring, and we looked at the first 12 verses over two Sundays and dealt with the, co- uh, the cause of conflicts and the cure for conflict. As we looked at verses 7 through 12, we saw, especially in those verses, but really throughout the whole book, this idea of humility and the importance of humility. If, if you think about that theme and the various topics, very practical topics that James looks at, we have to recognize that, that humility in our speech will help us to guard our tongues. Humility in relationships will help us to avoid conflict. That's one thing we looked at last time. Humility in our wealth or position will help us properly regard others and keep us from thinking too highly of ourselves. And here, James challenges us to humility in our planning, in how we consider our tomorrows. James helps us to see that our lives here upon this earth are fleeting. He says, you are a mist. Pairs our life to a vapor that is soon dissipated and is gone. So before we read our text, let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it instructs us and corrects us and points us to our Savior and to our God. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and you've shown us the duty that is required of man in your word. Lord, we pray, O God, that that we would receive it, give us eager hearts and open ears and open minds, Lord, to receive your word. Help us to be like that good soil that, Lord Jesus, that you talked about in your parable, that it was eager to receive and, and where the seed of the, of the gospel would grow forth and, and bear much fruit. I pray that would be true for all of us here within the hearing of this passage this morning. And Lord, we ask that that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James 4, beginning with verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. If there ever was a poster year for uncertainty, for the uncertainty of tomorrow, I think it would have to be 2020. 
Perhaps if you remember when you received the news of the major events that were changing drastically from authorities of either in the government or leaders of whether it was the NBA that was canceling their season or the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo that maybe you heard shockingly was closing down within a few hours. Maybe you were a student and your spring break began early and then you realized that you weren't going back to in-person classes. You were going to have to finish your semester online. I don't think I have to tell you that tomorrow is uncertain. We've lived that. We've seen that over these last seven months. But even here in living in this COVID world in which we find ourselves, we can fall into the trap that James warns us about in our texts. So I think it will be to our benefit this morning if we slow down and consider these verses carefully. And we want to look at this text under four headings. You'll see in your outline the danger of presumption, the uncertainty of life, the evil of boasting, and the sin of neglect or omission. In every text in James, as we've gone through here, he has been immensely practical. He has given us things that we can hold on to. As we've said before, this is a rubber meets the road kind of epistle. It helps us in our day-to-day life. And this text is no exception. He seems here to be addressing businessmen, merchants, quite presumptuous merchants, I might add, who are laying out a business plan for an expanding market. They're saying, we're going to go into this town, we're going to buy, we're going to sell there, we're going to live there a year, and we're going to reap a profit. They're making goals. They're making plans. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with goals or making plans. Scripture commends those who learn from the diligence of the ant, even the smallest of creatures that lays up stores for the future. And you don't have to read many passages in the book of Proverbs to see that diligence is highly recommended. Diligence and wise planning reaps rewards. Now, I'm not as meticulous as some in their planning and organization, but we have a large family and and it is a common occurrence and typically a daily occurrence to think about the next day and, and what needs to happen and who has this practice and who has to be here or there because we've had a limited number of drivers and we have to work out all of those logistics. And many of you have similar things in your family. Most of us keep a schedule so we can plan well And scripture commends that. So what's wrong with the plans that are being made here? Well, it seems that the planners there in verse 13 have fallen prey to the danger of presumption. They're presuming upon things and they're leaving God out of the picture. First, they are presuming that they have the time to accomplish the goals that they have set. They've said, we'll do this today or tomorrow. We'll be there a year. This is what will happen in this time frame. They're effective planners. We're told that our goals should be time-bound. If we simply say we'll do something someday, then that someday typically never comes. They're, They're all about when they will get to their plan. Again, that's not the problem. It's simply that they've left God out of their timeline. They failed to factor God into their plans of when they're going to do what they've said they're going to do. And James scolds them a bit, ironically, and he says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, and neither do you or I. They knew much, but they forgot to factor that they are not guaranteed tomorrow. James here is echoing Proverbs 27, and we've mentioned before the connection between Proverbs and the New Testament book of James. Proverbs 27 tells us, do not boast about tomorrow, 
for you do not know what a day may bring. Secondly, these folks are presuming upon the choices that are available to them. They think they can do whatever they please. They think they can simply pick a market, move into it, and assume success. And finally, they're assuming upon their own abilities and not considering their own frailties. And James chides them in this. He uses language there that is a little sharp when he says, come on. Other versions says, um, now listen. Or as the King James says, go to now. Or we might say in our language, listen up, pay attention to this. And James wants our attention because these are not just issues of planning. These are issues of life and death. And James goes on to say that life is uncertain. He says that what he asks that question, what is your life? And then he answers the question and personalizes it and says, you are a mist, a vapor, a fog on the bathroom mirror. We've all seen it, perhaps driving early in the morning, maybe a, a fog that is laying low across the retention pond or a, or a lake, or maybe a field that is especially moist. What does it take for that to dissipate? Only a few minutes of warm sunshine and it's gone. Or you think of a, a sunset, a beautiful sunset that you're seeing that, that's just maybe made for a calendar or a screensaver. And you see it and if you pause for a minute, if you run inside to get a camera, it's changed. And a few minutes later, it's gone. That's our life. It's transient. It's fleeting. Last year, I, I reached my mid-century mark. And um, it's with sadness as I reflect upon a number of men, and particularly in my mind, that have passed, that have, that have died much before they expected to. Some in their 50s and some even before that. Life is unsure. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. Psalm 90 is a psalm that we should go to often. I think maybe I would recommend reading it every year on your birthday because hopefully it makes you grateful for the time that you have and it reminds you in the words of Moses, the man of God, how time is fleeting. It's perhaps the oldest psalm and Moses, of course, was the author of some of our earliest books of the Old Testament. And in that psalm, we're given various word pictures about our life. He says, our years are swept away like a flood. As I read that, I was reminded of a flood. I, I remember coming to our, my hometown in Kansas when I was a teenager. And I was driving around and, and looking at some of the floodwaters. And one place particularly, I was on a highway and there were fields on both sides close to a river. And the river had swollen and swept into those fields. And included in the flooded area was a pumpkin patch. And there were pumpkins swirling around in the river, or in the, in the waters, soon to be washed away, never to be seen again. That's like our life. Moses says that our years are like grass that grows and then dies a few days later. Our days are soon gone and we fly away. That psalm says, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We're given just a few years upon this earth. Moses says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. Some of you perhaps are... Of extraordinary strength. I know we had a few of those in the early service that had passed that 80-year mark, but we're not guaranteed. I thought about 
my grandparents, all of whom lived into their 90s, and I, I like to think now that I'm past 50 that maybe I'll attain their age, but you know what? I'm not guaranteed that age. I'm not guaranteed another decade. I'm not guaranteed another tomorrow, and neither are you. It seems that time speeds up as we get older. It feels all the more urgent to make our days count. And that's why I like that psalm. That, and it, it tells us that we should pray, teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now the world would, the world, and I think I should also say Eastern religions, would like to make us think about our life like a circle. They want us to believe the theology of the Lion King, which says it's the circle of life that moves us all through despair and hope, through faith and love, till we find our place on the path unwinding in the circle, the circle of life. But I'm sorry, Disney Plus subscribers and Sir Elton John, who so ably sang that song that life has a beginning and life upon this earth will have an end. The author of Hebrews tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There's only one life, which will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And in light of these truths, we should live quorum Deo. I hope that's a phrase that's familiar to you. It's Latin for before the face of God, or in the presence of God. You, if you read Table Talk, you see that regularly put out there before you. It means living all of life for God's glory, recognizing his rule over us. It's to do, as James tells us in verse 15, in making our plans that we should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Now, it's not simply enough to tack those words onto every one of our own plans, especially our own selfish plans. That doesn't necessarily sanctify our plans, but it's having that mindset. If you read through Paul's epistles, he, he would often say that if the Lord wills, we'll do this. But other times he announces plans that in, in his epistles that he doesn't tack that phrase on. But you know that he had that mindset. And the important thing is, is that we have our mindset, that mindset. We should live in a way that reflects that submission it should be our manner of life. If we know that God is sovereign, we have to recognize that we are not. If he is in control, then you are not in control. I am not in control. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And one of the things he said to pray is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our heart's desire should be to see God's will accomplished, even if it runs contrary to our plans. We must leave room for his providence. We must live quorum Deo, rejoicing in his kind providential care over us, knowing that he sees all, that he knows all. James has warned us of the danger of presumptuous planning because life is uncertain. To plan presumptuously involves a certain arrogance, really. And that leads us to our third point, the evil of boasting. To boast is to claim that our own will and power are supreme. A boastful person is confident in themselves, in their own abilities, in their successes. They see themselves as self-sufficient. Their trust is in their own accomplishments and plans, not in God's. 
That was the attitude of King Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, how he was the king of the, the, the mighty empire of the day. And scripture records where he walked on the roof of his palace and reflected on his own accomplishments and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What arrogance. But before those words were even out of his mouth, God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and said, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to humble you. You will live as a beast of the field for a period of time, for seven periods of time. Most of people interpret that seven years that Nebuchadnezzar lived as an animal. And God humbled him. And when, he, when that time was over, he sang God's praises. He recognized God as sovereign over all. This boastful arrogance that we see in the plans of the merchants. Their plans were, were really atheistic. They were without God. They were without regard to God. They, they pretended in a sense that God didn't exist. They were making plans without God. And there's a certain arrogance to that. To act if we control everything. That's what James is challenging them and us. And we like to be in control, don't we? We like to know what's happening. We want to know what to expect. And, and that's natural. On one hand, God has made us thinking creatures. He's, he's commended planning. And, 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 and we like to know what to expect. But that can become an idol to us. This year in particular has been marked by uncertainty. Perhaps your reaction to that is to seek greater control over your circumstances. Maybe you're grasping at control as a result of what we've gone through. But if you grasp at control, that's often because you haven't learned to rest in God's providence. We can trample on others in our quest for control. We can look for tools to assist us, things that give us the illusions of control. Maybe that's apps on our phone. Maybe that's our, uh, the latest super scheduler. Or maybe it's a home security system. All of those things help us think we're in control. Sometimes, though, we resort to self-medication to deal with things that we feel like we can't control. Sometimes it's easier just to drink a glass of wine or two or three instead of dealing with some challenging relationship with a spouse or a coworker. Some resort to some vice as a relief from the pressures of life only to have that thing then control them. A number of years ago, I worked with a man that I didn't know well, but I, I overheard him talking to uh, some other employees, and, and he was sharing about how he would gamble every weekend, and that was just his, his MO, what he did. He would go to the casinos, and, and he made an almost offhanded comment about being $50,000 down that year. And I was shocked, and I, uh, I said, that's, you know, I said something in reaction to that, and, and he was like, oh, no. He's like, I'm, I'm really doing better. Actually, I'm only down 30 now. I'm gaining. I'm going to get it all back, is what he said. And I said, you think you might need some help? Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm, I'm gaining. What happened was, is that thing had begun to control him. It had become something that controlled him. But if we make our plans without regard for God's providence, we become practical atheists. Now, I think it's easy to recognize that this kind of arrogance is, is sinful. It's, it's offensive. We're typically repulsed by arrogant people. But what does James mean when he says boasting 
in your arrogance. Well, to boast in something is to express your confidence in it. If you remember the Apostle Paul, he did boast. He boasted in the cross of Christ. He boasted in the death of Christ. He even boasted in his own weakness because he, he wanted the power of Christ to be seen in and through his weakness. But in contrast to that, these men, these merchants, were boasting in arrogance. They were showing what it meant to be a friend of the world that James has already warned us about. They were more concerned with their own plans and wealth than God's will and his glory. So how do we combat this ignorance? Well, we submit our actions to God. Thomas Manton, in his commentary on James, he helps us think through some of these things as he offers this guidance. He says, first of all, we should measure all our actions by his revealed will. How do you know what God wants and loves? Right here. It's all in his word. We measure our actions by his will. Secondly, he says we must eagerly pursue those things in which we see God at work. Things that God has called us to, we should eagerly do them. If God is leading us to something, we should do it. He says, thirdly, we must not seek to direct God in our prayers. How often do we say we make plans and then say, Lord, by the way, will you bless this? Lord, would you sanctify this thing that I really, really want? He says, he goes on, he says, we should continually seek his face. We should pray. We should seek God's will. And finally, he says, we should consider the overarching power of God's providence and recognize that he can change your plans at any time. Once again, we've seen that done this year in a way like never before. James has warned us of the danger of presumption, the uncertainty of life, and the evil of boasting. And now we come to the final verse, verse 17, which some would say that it's kind of awkwardly tacked on, that maybe James is doing another shift here to another topic. But I think if we look at it carefully, we see the connection with the things we have just said. Now, it's listed in your, um, your note sheet as the sin of omission. But after this was printed, I got to thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I think we need to change something. So if you've got a red pen or blue or black or whatever, take a pen and mark through that word omission and write the word neglect. Because I imagine you know what the sin of omission is. It's failing to do something that is required of you. That verse says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. The proof text is right there. However, I'm guessing that you rarely use this word outside the church. And that's why I want you to rephrase it as the sin of neglect, because that's really what a sin of omission is. If we read uh, or see on the news that someone has neglected their pets or animals, the public is outraged. If we read or hear of a parent who has neglected their children, they perhaps failed to care for them, to feed them, to protect them. We don't think in sterile terms of omission. We think in terms of neglect. Our righteous anger is, is, is against the thing that has hurt a child. Why? Because the right thing is for parents to love and care for their children. They should have known how to care for this child, and they failed to do it. And in failing to do so, they've endangered that child. To be guilty of neglect means that one does not do the positive commands of Scripture. And I think we need to think about this in terms of neglecting to do the things that God calls us to do. Now, this neglect might be a result of laziness, 
indifference, fear, anxiety. There could be many reasons, but if we're not doing what we should be doing, James tells us it's sin. Just as these merchants were making plans with no regard to God's will or sovereignty, perhaps this warning is not so out of place after all. You notice that word so, the first word of verse 17, is also often translated, and, and in other versions it's translated therefore. So we have to look why it's therefore. And it's there because it is pointing back to what these men have done. So James is saying, here's the reason. And here we need to give you a summary statement to help you understand what they're doing. Our shorter catechism helpfully tells us what sin is in question and answer 14. It says, sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And there you have the sins of commission in the second part and the sins of omission or the sin of neglect in the first. The lack of conformity, the, the, the want of conformity to God's law. Sins of neglect can come to us in our thoughts, in our desires, our words, and the things that we do. And there's just applications all over God's word. Colossians tells us that we are to set our affections on things above. What about you? Are you earthly-minded? Do you seek to set your affections on things above? Jesus tells us in, in Mark and, and Luke, and we see it in other places of Scripture, that we are to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor is ourself. What a high standard that is. We looked at that a few weeks ago in Mark. Is that your desire? We're told that our speech should be gracious and gentle, we are to be kind to one another, giving words of encouragement, seeking to build one another up. Do these things characterize your speech? We are to love our enemies, to forgive one another, to pray for one another, to bear with one another, to love one another. We are called to do all things for God's glory. We are called in whatever we do to do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. How many times do you do what you do for the sake of men, for the praise of men? We are to do it for God's glory. Husbands, I'm going to pick on you. Do you love your wife? Or are you neglecting to love her? Perhaps she's begged you to spend more time with her and you're always busy with work or TV or reading or playing video games. Maybe she's asked you to get help in your marriage for unresolved conflict that has seemed to nag at you for years. Are you neglecting to love your wife in this way? Wives, are you dishonoring your husband in your speech or in your spending? Are you forsaking the assembly of God's people together? Are you committed to the body of Christ? Christ is the head and king of his church. And we as the people of God are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. And if you neglect your family, you're neglecting God's people. And you might be saying, come on, preacher, give us a break. That's a lot. Yes, it is. And true, we do struggle with these things, but we need to recognize the sinfulness of sin, saints of God. Paul said in Galatians, and he was quoting Deuteronomy when he said, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The standard that Jesus proclaimed in Matthew 5 was perfection. He says, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. What I want us to see is sins of neglect, sins of omission are just as grievous 
as sins of commission. I'm reminded of the song that has, has often touched my heart about these matters by Thomas Pollock, which says, We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought, and feebly longed thy face to see. Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love thou art. He goes on in the next verse and says, We have not served thee as we ought. Alas, the duties left undone, the work with little fervor wrought, the battles lost or scarcely won. Lord, give the zeal and give the might for thee to toil, for thee to fight. We should grieve over sins of neglect, and especially when we neglect to seek God's will or recognize God's sovereignty over all of our life. But James does more than just beat us up. He points us to Christ. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, he reminds us that we are sons of God. And as we conclude, I want to remind you of that curse that Paul says, talks about in Galatians. Christ bore that curse for us. He bore the wrath and curse of God on our behalf. And there is grace for every sin. Whether that's a sin of commission of 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 actively breaking God's law, or a sin of neglect in failing to do what God has called us to. We must continually look to Christ. I think it was McShane that said, for every every one look at our sin, we need to look ten times at Christ. Because he perfectly obeyed God's law. And if you are in Christ this morning, if you have repented and are trusting in him for your salvation, you can rest assured in his obedience, in his righteousness that is imputed to us. Praise the Lord. You don't need to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps because you can't. So come to Christ. Look to him. And if you're trying to control things and the wheels are coming off, stop trying because you're really not in control anyway. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians says. Secondly, as as we close, when things are out of control, you can rest in the knowledge that God is sovereign. He's in control even this year, especially this year. Even if you're facing a tough situation, I know there's people among us that are in very hard circumstances, difficult providences, frowning providences, as the hymn says. But behind that is the smiling face of a good and kind father. As Cooper says in the hymn that we'll sing in a minute, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And remember that God is working all things out for your good and his glory. Romans 8.28 says, he is working all things for our good. And you may not understand all his ways. The trials can be difficult But God is at work. We have to trust him in that. William Cooper, as I've already mentioned, wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. That hymn is especially meaningful if you think about the man, William Cooper. He was a man who faced much pain. He faced darkness. He battled depression all his life. There were four significant periods in his life where he was especially low. In fact, he came to faith in 1764 at the St. Albans Insane Asylum. There he came upon a Bible. He read about the resurrection in John 11. He read Romans 3.25. And God used those passages to open his eyes. 
Help him to see the goodness of Christ and the sufficiency of his atoning work. A few years later, Cooper moved to Olney, England, where John Newton pastored. And, and Newton recognized his, his depression and his darkness and his melancholy. And he, he tried to draw him out. And he would take Cooper with him to do pastoral visitation. And they would go from house to house. And they would have opportunity as they walked from house to house to discuss things. And Newton tried to encourage him. And Newton recognized his, his poetic abilities. And he, he, the, he got the idea that they should work together on a hymnal. And that's what they did. And in the end, Newton wrote over 200 hymns, according to the source I read, and Cooper wrote nearly 70. The hymnal was published in 1779, and of course, Amazing Grace was in there. Newton's How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way, and there is a fountain filled with blood. In that hymn that we'll sing in a minute, Cooper wrote, His purposes will ripen fast. Unfolding every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Cooper never knew of all of God's purposes in the darkness that he faced, in the pain that he suffered. And we can't fully know all of the pain and the reason for all of Cooper's pains, but yet we reap the benefit. We know some of it when we sing this hymn. We see the good in it, and it continues to bless people even today. And you may not know what, that God, what God is doing in all of your circumstances. It may seem that the mines from which God brings his treasures are incredibly deep. But it's there that he lays his treasures up and works his sovereign will. Let us pray.